Hey everyone, I'm Rachel. And I'm Sarah. And we're sisters who just so happen to be best friends. We're here to unpack all of the unexpected moments that come with early adulthood and hope to uncover a more meaningful life, one conversation and cup of coffee at a time. This is Mocha's In The Meantime. Hello everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Mocha's In The Meantime. My name is Sarah. And I'm Rachel. And thanks for tuning in today. Um, I think just to get right into it, we're both really excited to introduce a new segment that we're going to be kind of piloting in this episode. um, And that is a question of the week. So um, we're hoping to just start every episode with kind of just, I don't know, a fun or open-ended question that the both of us will ponder together. And yeah, I think it's just a way that we want to like um, explore some new topics in our intros because we were realizing that we often would just go to like weather topics or <laughs> like enjoying the summer or the spring, you know, colors. <laughs> and not that that's not exciting, but we just kind of wanted to expand our horizons a little bit. So yeah, for sure. I think it's just fun because a lot of podcasts I listen to, they have sort of a segment at the beginning where they do like a question type topic or like a high and low or like Mm -hmm. those kind of things. So we thought it'd be fun to explore. And Mm -hmm. we also want to say that we're adding a end segment after Mm -hmm. listening to our podcast. We're going to be doing a caffeine fix of the week where we talk about either a coffee shop that we have been enjoying, a type of beverage we've been enjoying, maybe a specific brand of coffee bean or tea Mm -hmm. like it's kind of open-ended but anything sort of related to caffeine if we have a recommendation (laughs) one of us will talk about it so we thought it would just be fun way to tie in our love of caffeine totally yeah and just like try something new I think so um to get started with our first question of the week we want to think about what is an unpopular opinion that you have? Because Rach and I, it's one of our favorite topics, I feel like, to discuss unpopular opinions. Um, yeah. And we have quite a list. I think for me, an unpo- a lot of my unpopular opinions are related to certain foods. Um, just because when I was growing up, I had these weird um, preferences that some of them have stuck. And one of them is, I don't enjoy cheesy snacks. And I feel like most people oh, out there can't relate. So that's why I say it's an unpopular relate. Yeah, like cheesy popcorn or like Cheetos or oh, um, so good. Like I kind of like Cheez-Its, I guess. But just in general, that's not the snacks I go for. <laughs> what do you um, go for for snacks? I just much prefer like not snacks. Like I prefer meals. Yeah, that's like true. I prefer like you know, like big amounts of food, not like just snacks that don't make me feel satiated. Yeah, (laughs) But I, if I was eating a snack, I would probably have like apples and peanut butter or like, I mean, I like like desserts, like cookies and stuff like that. Or I really like chips, like plain Lay's or like sour cream and onion. You like sour cream and onion. Yeah. I thought that would sort of go with the cheesy vibe. Even though it's not cheesy. Doritos. Oh, Wow. That is an unpopular opinion, though, because I think most people's favorite types of snacks are cheese related. <laughs> yeah, like I just am weird about it. And I know that it's an unpopular opinion. So, um, yeah. What do you know what your unpopular opinion is? I have a few that I, that kind of come to mind. But one that's kind of lighthearted, I guess, <laughs> is that I just 
for whatever reason, I just don't think Mamma Mia is a very good movie. And <laughs> I know that a lot of people are not happy as they listen to this, maybe because it's very popular. I know a lot of Die Hard Mamma Mia stands, and I don't think there's anything wrong with liking it, but I I just I think it's the fact that we don't have a nostalgia tied to it because we didn't, it wasn't really like a childhood movie. Mm. So I watched it for the first time in college and I was kind of like, oh, this is it. This is what everyone's saying is like amazing. And they're just freaking out over it. Like, I just was kind of confused by like the level of notoriety for what I saw before me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I kind of have to agree on that one because I think a lot of people I know, yeah, they grew up with Mamma Mia. Like it's this classic movie from their childhood mm-hmm. or their teen years. And so I think with that context, I would maybe have had different opinions, but yeah. I just didn't like love it either. I just I mean, I like love like Meryl and um the actors are great. Like the main Colin Firth. I love yeah, that. And name. like what well, I forget Amanda Seyfried, I think is her name. Mm-hmm. Like I really like all the actors in it. And like I like the music because it's like fun ABBA songs. Yeah, the music's um, fun. I think the most epic part was when they were singing um Dancing Queen. Dancing Queen. Like I thought mm-hmm. that was really iconic, but I just kind of felt like the plot just was like weird <laughs> like I didn't feel like it was very well developed like lackluster and it was like they kind of just had to find a way to make the music fit versus yeah. like really thinking of a great plot or something I don't know no I agree yeah yeah I hate to say it because I feel like a lot of people I know love Mamma Mia but... yeah and then I actually in college I saw the sequel at the movie like there was like movie nights for free at my college and I went went to see the sequel and I actually kind of liked it better because it was like the prequel where you got to see her kind of fall for all the three men that we meet later Mm. and like she's pregnant with Amanda Seyfried and like I felt like the storyline was like better but then oh. anyone that ha- had been like a huge fan of the original was like, oh, the original so much better. But I was like, since I didn't grow up with it, I didn't really like it that much. And then seeing the sequel, I was like, this is better. But oh, interesting. Very yeah. unpopular opinion, I, I would say. <laughs> That's a random <laughs> one, but a good one. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I hope you all enjoyed this first, you know, run of this uh, intro segment. All right, so now to kind of get into the nitty gritty of the episode, um, we're really excited to have on one of Sarah's friends from her graduate school program um, to kind of just talk to us about her experience being in higher education or just in education in general while having the diagnosis of a learning disability. Yeah, and I think we just both learned a lot about how Um, there are just so many barriers in our education systems for people with disabilities and for people um, that maybe need accommodations in classrooms, whether it's for, um, you know, being, having someone take notes for them or having extra time on a test and all of these different um, accommodations that 
Um, I think from the outside, I thought it was easier potentially to get than it really is in colleges. Um, Mm. And I think Lexi really dives into both the amazing people she's worked with in higher ed and also some of the more challenging experiences she's had. So I think it really opened my eyes that there's so much more to be done to make um, schools more equitable for all students. Yeah, I I echo all that. I think it was a very eye-opening recording session. And I think just as you'll see, Lexi is um, just a great person to hear from because not only is she so open about her own experiences, but she's, you know, just really passionate about advocating for people and um, connecting with others um, about some of these like systems level issues that are present in our education system and in our society at large. Lexi's a good friend of mine, met her in grad school, and um, I'm really glad that we could reconnect in this episode. So we hope you enjoy and we'll check in again at the end. All right. Hello, everyone. And thanks for being here today on Mocha's in the Meantime. Today, we're here with a good friend of mine. Her name is Lexi. And we actually met while we were both in graduate school. So it's definitely been a journey, (laughs) I'd say, (laughs) from where our relationship started, like pre-pandemic. And just we were both really excited about going to a football game that never actually happened. That's kind of how our friendship initiated. Um, And we got to teach together as, as teaching assistants and spend a lot of time together over the last couple of years. So I'm really excited to introduce you. Um, Lexi, do you want to just tell everyone a little bit about yourself before we get into this? Yeah, of course. So my name is Lexi. My real name is Alexandra. So self-chosen name. So fun. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And this question is always, I never really know how to respond to it. I guess who I am at this moment in time is... um, I currently work as a data analyst. I'm a data nerd and I love the outdoors. Um, I love public health in terms of trying to change our current system. So I work in that a little bit. Um, Neurodiversity advocate. Uh, Yeah, I'm just kind of all over the place in a beautiful mess. And I (laughs) dabble in lots of things and definitely and someone who is in their 20s and exploring life and that's how I would explain myself at this moment in time (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh well thanks yeah thanks for that and thanks for being here um I think that last bit goes really well with just what this podcast is about which is like exploring yourself and what kind of Mm -hmm. like the meaning of life and how you feel about things as a young adult and how that evolves so um yeah yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're here, we're doing it. <laughs> yeah, I also feel like right when you said that, like I'm a 20 something figuring it out, I was like, that's literally this podcast. So it's like, <laughs> you're such a perfect guest, I think, to have on. <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So Lexi, I feel like since we both met in higher education, we've had a lot of discussions just about what's going right in higher ed and what's not. Um, And I think, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as you mentioned before, you're a neurodiversity advocate. And I was hoping you could speak a little bit more about like what that means to you. Um, And yeah, and and where it all started. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I would say 
I would say kind of to, to start off is obviously I'll have to talk about myself um, and how I got into it because otherwise I wouldn't be as invested. So I'll go mm-hmm. ahead and kind of tell you my origin story. Mm-hmm. So way back when in high school, which is actually considered to be pretty late to be diagnosed with a learning disability, um, I was struggling a lot in this class that I really, really loved. And it was actually AP psychology. And I love mm-hmm. this class so much. I like couldn't express to you how much I really love the content. So I was really invested in doing well. And um, I was trying really hard and, and I felt like I was studying consistently and then not seeing any reward. I was getting C's um, instead of getting, for the amount of time that I was putting into it, I was, you know, obviously not getting the grade that I was wanting. And it hurt too, because I just loved the class. So I got so frustrated that I actually cheated on an exam. And how I did that was we actually were in charge of grading our own papers. And I think it was kind of a test by my teacher as well. Like he, he was Mm. just such an interesting person. Mm -hmm. I think he was also testing, you know, how honest we were. And so he would Xerox the initial exam give it back to us a week later and have us grade it and then send it back. But we didn't know that he was Xeroxing him to see if that was, there was some cheating. So I was adding to my answers based off of the rubric and that's cheating. Um, And I got caught and he gave the opportunity to the class. He said, you know, there's been some cheating if you know who you are, please come talk to me. Or if you know, you know, that whole phrase, like if you know who you are. And um, so I, anyways, I decided to go up and talk to him um, after a week because I was, I felt it like in my gut, like it was me and I knew it and I needed to tell him and I felt really bad about it. And when I expressed to him why I did what I was doing, I said I was so frustrated because I loved the content, but I just couldn't seem to do well on the exams. Um, And I would talk to him about the content and tell him everything I knew. And so he was kind of surprised too. Obviously, I failed the exam, but I was very truthful. And I told him I cheated on not only that exam he was referring to, but the one before. And with that honesty, um, he actually, instead of demonizing me, he in a, in a way kind of rewarded me because he allowed me to, um, retake the exam or not retake it, but essentially like, um, regrade it and then like put in the new, yeah, like, I don't remember specifically, but along the lines of, I failed the exam he was referring to, but the other exams that I did admit to cheating on, he like, let me do some sort of like point situation. Mm. Um, But most of all, he brought this to the attention of my parents and the guidance counselor in a way where he informed them that he thinks I was struggling with some sort of learning disability or something. Mm. And I just, I'm so grateful for him every day because he changed my life. Um, And after that, we made an effort for me to go get tested and get a diagnosis And when I came back with my diagnosis, I let him know what it was. And he ended up um, doing a whole presentation. I don't know if it was just for my school or for like 
the broader school community um, about how we shouldn't demonize children for cheating, but rather we should ask them, why are they cheating? Like what's going Mm -hmm. on there? And of course there should be a consequence because it's wrong, but also he wanted to help me and understand the deeper, the deeper reasoning behind why I was doing what I was doing. And he changed the course of my life completely. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm forever grateful for him. And ever since then, having him as an advocate and then navigating the higher education community, the institution, um, not only as a neurodiverse individual, but a woman has been really difficult. And I kind of always come back to this origin story where I had an advocate um, who changed my life. And I always want to be or I hope to be some sort of advocate for others in the way that he changed my life. So mm-hmm. I would say that's how I got on my path. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting because we actually just recorded an episode about impactful teachers. So I think he was like a really good example of somebody that saw his students like as individuals and really tried to advocate for them. So it just reminded me of the conversation we just had <laughs> about mm-hmm. how like one teacher could really impact the course of your students' lives and stuff. So totally. And I and I get so frustrated. I mean, this is a whole nother thing, right? But I get so frustrated with the way that teachers are compensated and all of these things because they change your life, your lives. All of the above, <laughs> <Yeah>. they change. <laughs> um, yeah. and they deserve much better than than our current situation allows yeah Mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah. no totally I feel like that could be a whole episode of a podcast (laughs) (laughs) yeah um thanks for sharing that story I I was also curious if you could like speak a little more about what your diagnosis is like when you are um faced with exams or just like tasks in school like kind of just what your experience is like yeah Awesome. So I have a couple diagnoses. diagnoses. Um, I have an auditory processing disorder. I have a memory disorder. And I have generalized anxiety, which I like to bring into this because even though I'm not actually sure if generalized anxiety is considered in the learning disability category, but I just think it ties so much into my disability. Um, so I do like to, to always highlight that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say my symptoms are very similar in a way to someone with like ADHD. It's not the same at all because it's not that it's not the same diagnosis, but it's that I can't remember kind of what I'm doing. Um, a lot of the time, if I get distracted by other things um, mm-hmm. and if I don't create a memorable hook in my brain for a situation such as um, driving to a certain destination, if that does not become memorable in a way where it's like, I work with my accommodations such as finding landmarks to make sure that I can get to that destination through like Google Maps or something, or sorry, without Google Maps, Um, I just can't remember to get there and it can be five of tens of years later. If I don't use 
some of the strategies that I've been taught to remember things. Um, I just will never remember, which is crazy. Right. So like, um, I have been best friends with my best friend, um, (laughs) since fifth grade. So that's a considerable amount of years. It's over 10 years of being best friends. Um, and for the longest time, I just couldn't get to her house without a GPS before I learned, um, some of the solutions like finding landmarks and, um, just some other strategies. So I would just GPS to her house every single time and just never remember. Um, so that's like an example. Mm -hmm. Um, another example is often when people tell me things, if it's not written down, um, or it's just not put in a physical place again, kind of like with a hook in my brain, I won't remember. So let's say Sarah, you tell me, yeah, I'm going to Hawaii next week or something. I just, for some reason, I will not remember that you're going to Hawaii. Even if you tell me 10 times, I won't remember unless it's somewhere in my vicinity of my day to day. So if I see it in my calendar or I see it kind of next, you know, something within my line of how I live, I'm not going to remember. And a lot of people have that problem, but it's extreme in my case where Mm -hmm. even if you're telling me multiple times, even if it affects me personally, let's say you're going to Hawaii. So you're not going to be able to walk my dog next week or something. I just like won't remember that, even though it affects me personally, which is usually not the case for people who sometimes just like forget that their friend Mm -hmm. is going to Hawaii. Um, So a lot of the strategies that I use to kind of get through life is um, mnemonics and creating these hooks in my brain so that things become I don't want to say meaningful because everything is meaningful, but I do think that that's the appropriate word because Mm -hmm. when I associate meaning with what you're saying in terms of how to remember it, it's going to stick with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also, um, I'm very, I would say I'm very good at patterning. So like if X affects Y, then Y affects Z. Um, and it's some sort of, uh, connection between the two. So it's kind of like a system systems Mm -hmm. perspective. Oh my Um, goodness. (laughs) (laughs) It's from grad school, everybody. (laughs) If it's a systems perspective where everything's interconnected, that's the way I think rather than in specifics and memorization. So it's Mm -hmm. a strength. It truly is a strength because I'm able to bring all these things together in broad concepts and create a web of Mm -hmm. intersection, intersectionality, essentially. But if you were to ask me specifics in inside of each of those little parts, that's where I falter and have a difficult Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And like in school, I think I guess that kind of shifts as you get more into a specialty area, but I've noticed at least like throughout elementary, middle and high school um, that a lot of classes are focused on details, like memorizing Mm -hmm. dates in history class or, you know, in math, like remembering how to do all these different sorts of problems that are very, like you're saying, very specific um, and based Mm -hmm. on memorization. So um I could see how like in your psych class, for example, 
because there's in psych, I took psych too and loved it. It's like a lot of definitions and just like, you know, different conditions and right. Like people throughout history who have studied psych. So I think that makes a lot of sense that with this, um, learning disability that you have, that it would be difficult to get through some of those classes. (laughs) And and it's also like, it's not that I don't understand. It's not like I'm not intelligent enough to not understand, for example, in psych, like the condition, like Pavlov's theory, right? Mm -hmm. I don't not understand what happened. I very much understand the concept. You could explain that to me once and I understand. Do I remember that it's Pavlov? No. Do I remember that it's a dog? you know, no, Mm -hmm. do I remember the entire concept and the meaning behind the problem or this problem solution experiment, everything? Yes, I absolutely do. And that was what was so frustrating because I Mm -hmm. knew I understand, I understood what was so important, but I couldn't understand who the heck did the experiment. Was it a dog or a chicken or a cow? I don't know. Like, Mm -hmm. Who was Pavlov? Like, who the heck was Pavlov? (laughs) (laughs) You know? But if if you needed me to explain that experiment and understand why it was important, I could 100%. Mm -hmm. Or just in life, I think in jobs, like the important thing usually is having that ability to see the big picture and to like think about important concepts versus like in a job, you're not going to need to remember the year that this scientist did this thing usually unless you're like doing some sort of really in-depth research but I think like the skills and the strengths that you have of having that big picture is very successful in the job world but maybe in the education world that is super focused on those specifics it was more difficult um have you seen like a shift do you think since working um yeah. And applying those skills. Yeah, I was just going to say I was hired for this very reason. Um, I was hired mm-hmm. because I am considered a systems thinker and can find solutions to very interconnected issues. Um, and I feel seen and heard. And I absolutely love my job because I don't feel like I'm constantly hitting my head against the wall because I don't know the name of someone who conducted an experiment. Um, and therefore I didn't do well enough on the exam to, you know, feel good about moving into the next section of class. When in reality, I learned everything that I needed to in that class. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I would say, you know, in the working world, at least in my experience, I think it depends on your uh, role for sure, because obviously like if you're an engineer or something of that sort, specifics are very, very important and specifics are important for my role too. But I think having this added bonus of being a systems thinker and, and thinking about everything that could impact the solution or problem that I'm working on um, is the reason that I'm in the role that I am today. So, yeah. 
Yeah. So I think it is interesting to compare the differences between being in the working world and like being in the, <laughs> the higher education world. And um, just to like go back to higher ed for a minute, I was curious if you could speak a little more to like some of the experiences you had in maybe like undergrad and grad school and like some of the challenges you faced in those environments, as well as some of the people maybe or resources that you interacted with that were able to help you and, and, um, like get you the accommodations that you need? Yeah, I think, you know, I was diagnosed, let's see, I think it was my junior, like my going into my senior year was the first year, uh, senior year of high school, excuse me, that I had accommodations. So the first year of college was the first, like the second year of having accommodations and seeing really the change in my quality of life, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, my GPA, which, um, you know, this is a whole issue, you know, like we shouldn't be quantifying learning and all this stuff, right? But but just to mm-hmm. kind of, you know, give you a number, my GPA went, I think, from a 3.3 or like a 3.4 to a 4.0 straight my first year of college. Um, and also, I think, that first year and senior year in high school. Mm. Um, And because of that, I was at a a different college and um, they, at the time, they didn't have the program that I was looking for because I decided that I wanted to go to med school at the time. So I ended up transferring to a school where they had a um, neuroscience program specifically, which was what I was really curious about and wanted to explore at the time. So being pre-med as a woman as well, with a learning disability that people haven't really heard of. I mean, if you tell people you have a memory disorder and you're trying to go to med school, I, you know, it comes with a lot of, I don't even have the word for you, but like I almost want to say pushback and judgment Mm. and stereotyping because Mm. they, you know, there just hasn't been a lot of of exposure. And Mm. also, you know, and then when I say, yeah, and I also have this auditory processing disorder, I mean, it's just like, you know, I, I don't, I understand why people will judge, but I, you know, it was, it it made it very difficult. So, Mm. Um, I think, you know, I first started and I had to work really, really hard. I didn't really have a social life in college to the extent that I felt my peers did. Um, and I felt like I was constantly slipping behind, um, even though I was doing pretty well in the class overall, the classes, um, I had to really rely on the TAs and the professors office hours to ensure uh, that I did well because the model that they were using in higher education to teach their students, um, I was not friendly towards me. um, And I think it did bring a lot of stress and I don't wanna assume for everyone, but I do believe it it brought a lot of stress to to the majority of students being pre-med at the school I was in was considered one of the most like stressful um, paths that that you could take and Mm -hmm. there's a reason for that (laughs) 
I mean, you know, mm-hmm. there's de- there has to be a reason um, why people were feeling that way. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was getting very frustrated in general because my accommodations, um, because I, I didn't have a social life essentially, and I was constantly studying. Now, I do think that comes from a standpoint of being, of feeling like I didn't want to fail after having been diagnosed and being granted these accommodations. I didn't want to let myself down or people who believed in me down. So I really wanted to make sure that I could pass these classes. Um, And obviously having anxiety, it never really felt that good to, to receive what some would think is a failing grade on an exam. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it would be curved at the end of the class. So it mm-hmm. just was a such a stressful, stressful, stressful environment. Mm-hmm. But I have to say that the Disability Resource Center at my undergrad institution after I transferred was one of the most supportive and educated um, resources I've ever had. So what I mean by that is there's a lot of laws intertwined with learning disabilities that a lot of people may be unaware of. So we, we as people with, a learning, uh, with learning disabilities, we have rights um, that even, you know, I wasn't aware of. Um, for example, it's illegal to disclose someone's disability to anyone else but the, the party with the disability. So if you disclose it to the class or like if a professor discloses it to a class, uh, that's illegal. Um, if the professor does not provide you with reasonable accommodations, that's illegal. So if your professor just refuses to give you the accommodations, it's probably illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know that. I was just like, oh, okay. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> if a professor wouldn't give me my accommodations, but when I started talking to the resource center, they would actually help me advocate. Um, Mm -hmm. And on top of that, they created such a safe space to take exams. So they actually had a center where you would go and take your exam so that you didn't have to be in the classroom. um, If you have a disability where you cannot be distracted, like you need to be in a distracted, reduced environment. Mm -hmm. And every time I went, which was so lovely because I have a memory disorder, they, and just for many reasons, it was so lovely, but they have everything you need. So calculators, papers, um, computers, I mean, they had everything and they always were just so, um, open and accepting and never othered me. They were so happy to see me and would ask me about my day and treat me like a normal person. Um, and if I knew kind of the, the standard, hey, like you get your exam, you sit down, you do this, I'll come and get you. They didn't give me that protocol like and, and treat me like I was just kind of like a patient almost, right? Mm-hmm. Like where you go through like what's expected of you to take the exam and that's that. They would like know, be, know me by name and talk to me like I'm a person, ask me how I'm feeling like a professor does sometimes during, before an exam, yeah. do you have any questions, blah, 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 you know, go ahead um, and, and take a seat and I'll let you know when you're, when you have 
five minutes before your time is up, I'll come tap you on your shoulder. Like a professor usually does. They inform the class when there's five minutes left of the exam. So it was like, just, I really felt, started to feel empowered by that. Um, and then they informed me, the resource center informed me that there was a club on campus for disability advocacy. So I actually jumped into that, um, became president and a co-president of that club for um, two, about two years. And I actually, you know, did a TED talk on my experience in disability advocacy. And then I started getting invites to speak about disability advocacy in my story in local schools. I've also spoken at Stanford. So it just kind of um, became part of my life and my story because I think of the rarity of my disability and, and my ability to kind of outwardly talk about discrimination um, and my evolution of understanding my rights and, and seeing people be, um, what's the word? Here's my disability in full effect. <laughs> this, <laughs> I have really bad word recall. Um, it's like it's like the word Sarah. This is why I love you because Sarah and I teach you know teach together. So she would always fill in fill in when I couldn't think of a word. So Sarah, it's like when you throw a blanket on a fire and the fire kind of is like succumbed to the blanket. Like that's the word I'm looking for. So like, like extinguish. Yes. And I saw people's like inner motivation and feelings about them. So look at your sister showing you up. Um, <laughs> I was like, I think I have it. I'm just going to go for it. <laughs> um, they're like the life inside of them. I saw others have a power over them who, who shouldn't have that power um, to extinguish that, I almost want to say like, seriously, that flame inside of them to, to achieve their dreams, just because they were diagnosed with a learning disability and neurodiverse, which has so many strengths in its own. And it, it was just so frustrating to me. And so I started to kind of step into the advocacy role and then grad school hit and COVID hit. And so I did kind to lose my momentum a little bit, but I definitely am starting to get into that more, especially with higher education, because I'm really seeing, I'm seeing workplaces change more quickly than higher education. Um, mm -hmm. And there's just so many issues. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I want to be part of the change because we all deserve to, to reach our dreams, whether that be in higher education or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. No, that's like super powerful to think about. And yeah. I think like we've, like we've mentioned before, at least in my head, it doesn't make much sense that like workplaces are evolving more quickly than higher education, even though the order of those things is flipped. Like you usually yeah. start with education and go into a job. Um, and like one thing that I remember talking with you about a little bit before we recorded, like when we were preparing for this episode was just, I mean, obviously like advocacy work is amazing. And like, you know, 
putting yourself out there and speaking and like connecting with people like other neurodiverse individuals is such a like great thing. But then I think <laughs> with our systems perspective, um, we've, we're both in public health and that's a huge theme. So that's why we keep mentioning it, but, um, it kind of makes me think about how it's a shame that there needs to be a space for advocacy in the first place, because I think yeah. it's kind of highlighting that our society at large mm-hmm. is not, um, just naturally accommodating to an array of different kinds of people, whether it's a learning disability, physical disabilities, like people of different, like race, ethnicities, languages, like there's just a lot at baseline. That's not, um, universally accepting to all people. Um, I know where you're going with this. I do. I really do. And I think it's, I get nervous discussing this because I never want to, um, feel that I'm speaking for others. So I do want to just, you know, disclose that this is my personal kind of thought process based off of my own experience. Um, But I do believe, you know, in in this country, we, there's a lot of othering going on from a perspective of this is an idealization of, of a perfect person. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, this is how they should move throughout the system. Therefore the system should be this way because that's a perfect mm-hmm. person. Um, mm-hmm. But that's really freaking boring. I'm sorry. But that's like, <laughs> it is, <so. laughs> it's like, that's boring. Yeah. <laughs> why would an unrealistic? <laughs> yeah. Why are we setting that expectation? Like, why shouldn't we set an expectation for diversity? You know, why shouldn't that mm-hmm. be our, our perfect utopia? Um, mm-hmm. And it's a lot more complicated than that, obviously. I think as I want to, you know, highlight, I come, you know, I'm privileged in a way that I was able to afford my diagnosis. That is expensive. And if you go the route where you get an IEP, it's a really challenging process that takes time, which is also time is money. Time is, you know, that's expensive too. So I do want to highlight, I come from privilege. I am white. And so I do have those privileges in this system. Mm. And part of me thinks that if we essentially created a learning environment, that's just more conducive to not meeting this idealization that just makes absolutely no sense but rather allows for all our different diverse minds to come together and create really beautiful, interesting solutions to what we're learning, whether that be psychology, engineering, um, socio- you know, whatever, sociology, all of, all of the above, everything and anything, right? Like where would our world be? Where would we mm-hmm. be in society? Mm-hmm. And it's scary because like it's an unknown, and instead of thinking of it as being scary, maybe we could think of it as being beneficial. Um, uh, because I don't know if this is true. And it's something that I'm definitely trying to explore and understand before I go out there and dive into advocating again. Um, I think a number of my accommodations are necessary and do not apply to everyone. So for example, a distracted, reduced environment. I don't know if we can make that possible in a learning environment for everyone. 
because, you know, you do have to work together sometimes. And someone with my learning disability really struggles with that, like working in a group system where you're trying to like get to an end result is really difficult. So that's, that's like a separate accommodation, but maybe there's a broader way for us to have a classroom environment where the majority of my accommodations that are necessary are kind of wiped away um, because Mm -hmm. of the way that we're learning and teaching. And maybe those little extra accommodations, yes, are necessary, Mm -hmm. but maybe it doesn't feel like so many barriers all the time to Mm -hmm. get what I need because Mm -hmm. it is hard to kind of come in with a list of demands Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way um, wherever I'm learning. So I, and, and like I said, this is kind of me just talking because I I do want to continue to explore this and I do wonder if we're all on this kind of spectrum if we're actually we're all diverse we're all neurodiverse um I know that there's neurotypical and then there's neurodiverse I just also wonder if we have the adequate research to understand is there even a neurotypical and that's just a question. I don't know. I honestly Mm -hmm. don't know. And it's just something where I just feel like we're again, starting to identify and we're starting to other by having these labels, like neurotypical neurodiverse, um, things of that sort. And I understand the necessity of labels and, and the accommodations. And on top of that, I also wonder is there a way that we could do this differently? Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. And I think it's a little bit of a segue, but I was curious, um, like going back a little bit to um, like different teachers you've had and professors that mm-hmm. kind of had this, I guess, hesitation to your accommodations. Like, I just wonder if, for example, if your disability was more, um, like physical, like for example, you needed somebody to um, like sign what they were saying in class if you were um, hard of hearing or something or deaf, um, if that would have been like a different circumstance. And I think I was just curious if you think that because you're um, the way you think, yeah, it's not visible to the public. And maybe in some ways that's been helpful because maybe you felt less othered but at the same time that was also difficult because you maybe didn't get the accommodations or you didn't feel as validated by your teachers so I think I was wondering how that plays a role into your experience no I think you're a hundred percent right um and and something a thought that came to mind that I think is really important to talk about is um as a woman you know, we, there's a lot of stereotypes and expectations and and we're slowly starting to break those down. Unfortunately, most of my teachers were white men. um, So I will (laughs) admit to that. (laughs) And part of my disability, which Sarah knows very, very well, my dear Sarah, um, is that because I fear that I'm going to um, not remember my thought because of my memory disorder. And yes, I can write it down. But unfortunately, if I'm busy writing it down while the person's talking because of my auditory processing disorder, I will not be able to listen to what that person is saying and write down something at the same time, which is why I have a note taker. But anyways, the point I was getting to 
was um, I interrupt people. So I actually will um, kind of, I'll wait the best that I can and repeat the thought in my head as many times as I can. And I'll have to just step in as quickly as I can to make sure that I don't forget it. As a woman trying to speak with many of the professors, male professors that I was speaking with, that was so, so difficult because I, I don't have that physical, um, like you're saying, like I don't show physical signs of having a disability, but when I would go in and kind of essentially interrupt them or just like go in really quickly with my thought as soon as they were done talking, instead of, you know, being that dainty kind of woman who would wait for them to finish talking, let them interrupt, you know, things like that, that just couldn't happen with me. And so sometimes I felt that the response was, oh, this girl's rude. Like, what? Why is she interrupting me? What is she? Excuse mm. me. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have the authority here. Um, instead of, you know, taking a step back and being like, oh, maybe, she, you know, this is, you know, first of all, the expect- expectation shouldn't even be there. I admit interrupting is very rude. <laughs> and I've been working on that personally. So, so you know, keeping those two things in mind, those um, professors, and it's not every white male professor, but I do have to say the majority, um, instead of stepping back and thinking, wow, this person just came to me and told me they have X, Y, and Z learning disability, which first of all, I don't actually have to do. I can just tell them I have a learning disability. I go above and beyond and tell them exactly my learning disabilities in hopes that they'll better understand where I'm coming from. So legally, I do not have to disclose the specifics of my disability. Um, So they would never kind of take that step back and be like, well, like she's interrupting me because she has a learning disability. (laughs) Mm. Whereas I feel like often with women, when I disclose to them my learning disability, talk to them about the specifics and honestly say, hey, like I, you know, sometimes I interrupt. Sometimes I kind of have to get my thought in there really quick because I, I will forget it otherwise. Um, I've been received so much better, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and even working with Sarah, for example, she's a great example of someone who became my partner in teaching in graduate school. And I told her, I was like, Hey, like I interrupt sometimes. Um, and because of my disability and instead of getting upset with me, she would always just back me up. I mean, it was amazing. Like I would be able to get my thought in there. I would, I tried not to interrupt my dear Sarah very many times. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes, sometimes I would, because sometimes it's really difficult to just control your disability constantly. Mm-hmm. And Sarah understood that and would just back me up and kind of mm. use her strength, rem- being able to remember her thought. And then she would be able to come back in Uh, to the conversation with her thought, even though I interrupted her, which interrupting is not okay, but you know, it just, she understood and became a partner rather than um, someone who judged me for my disability and, or even judged me for just doing things and then not connecting it back to the fact that I have a learning disability. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I would also like to know a lot of my success in higher education was because I had people who validated me and believed in me, not Mm -hmm. even gave me extra accommodations at all. That was almost never the case of why I did well. The reason I did well was because I had a professor who believed in me or I had a mentor outside of that class who I could talk to and explain what was going on and be validated. Um, Having a resource center who I knew knew the laws and would be there for me if something went wrong and I didn't know if it was okay and I could talk to them and they would literally pull out the legal jargon and talk with the professor. And that is why I did well. Um, I do think I have major imposter syndrome to this day. So when I did get into grad school, I do think I let things slide that shouldn't have slid because I felt like I didn't deserve to be in grad school because for so much of my life, I was, you know, an athlete. And that was my label because I was kind of this, had this ditzy, what some may call like a ditzy character because I couldn't remember things. Right. So, um, and I dyed my hair blonde and, you know, white, I'm, I'm white and, you know, wore heavy eyeliner because that was the style, you know, early (laughs) 2000s or whatever. Definitely, definitely did that. (laughs) Right. So I kind of tried to like, you know, I was like this ditzy person and, and people kept telling me instead of saying, Oh, you're so, you know, instead of being encouraged, oh, like, you're so smart, or like, look at, you know, all these things, I was often defined as creative and athletic. So, and those are great terms. However, I was never kind of identified as intelligent, or good Mm -hmm. in school. Um, So when I got to grad school, I did have imposter syndrome and didn't feel like I deserved to be there. And there were some things that happened for sure that were not only insensitive, but they were illegal. Um, Mm -hmm. And the resource center was not the same as my undergraduate experience. Um, And a lot of it was not okay. And it took me to grad, I needed to graduate from that program and able to sit with what happened to know that I should have, I don't want to shit on myself, but like, (laughs) I, wish I had known my worth and I wish I had made more of um what's here here it is again the learning disability I wish I had made more of a I don't want to say a stink of it but I wish I had stood up a bit more because um I don't deserve it and then also I think you know everyone else in the who has been diagnosed with a learning disability doesn't deserve it. So maybe if I could have made a change, I could have helped others. Mm. So, yeah. As people, we're all kind of evolving too with our relationship with ourselves too. And like you mentioned doing a lot of advocacy work and then kind of coming to grad school, you were, you kind of maybe didn't have the time or space to like think about advocating as much or a lot of your resources were gone that you were connected with in the past. So I feel like that's also just a testament of how we're all really evolving too. And probably your relationship with your 
own disability has evolved as well. Um, but it's exciting to hear that you're hoping to get back into some work. I don't know, like there might be more opportunities to connect with other people now that you're also working instead of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I do want to come at it from a standpoint of, I think, you know, in, in college and maybe it didn't come off this way, but I do felt like I was more telling my story and preaching and trying to find solutions. And I think I've evolved to a point where I want to ask the general community, like, what do they need? What do we need as a community? What, what is going to be helpful for us as a community rather than having kind of a centered view of like, look at me and look what I did and, and look where I am today because of it. Um, because I feel like, yes, people can resonate with some of it, but I have such a different background from what they might have experienced. And so I would rather do almost like figure out here comes in my grad school language, but like a needs assessment, like what, what does everyone need Mm -hmm. Um, for me to better just like advocate? Um, So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think even hearing like those individual stories can really shape people because I think sometimes if you don't know someone that has a certain experience or you didn't experience it I think the work you've done of like sharing your specific journey I think is really impactful but I also see the side of like broadening that conversation to so many different perspectives Mm. um especially because what you were saying how there are um like a lot of I guess barriers to even being able to get those accommodations that you were able to have. Like, um, I didn't even know much about the process of that until we talked about it um, when we were planning this episode, just how you really need that like written diagnosis to kind of even have that support with the Disability Resource Center. And I think that's also, I feel like there's so many like segues, but I feel like that's, it's, its own set of issues that you need that like legitimized disability, even though some people maybe aren't even sure yet what is happening and they still need to figure it out in college, or maybe they didn't have like the money to be able to, or the time to really explore it. Or even the, um, someone else had to identify for me that I may have a learning disability which Mm -hmm. is just so complex on its own like (laughs) I was gonna say why don't we all just get diagnosed in the beginning of school or like we all just take a test and see where we are like what how we learn and things however that can be very complex because like learning styles can evolve actually you're not you don't necessarily always learn the same way that you did as you know a seven-year-old um but also like, you know, this brings it back to the whole conversation of like, maybe it's actually the way that we're teaching students as a whole, you know, can we, can we change that too? Um, instead of trying to just, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> it's so complicated. And then also your accommodations will expire as well. So like, I think mm-hmm. if you don't get diagnosed as a young adult, um, if you get diagnosed as a, as a young child, like, um, I think it's, don't like I don't know for sure but it's when you're young 
um, that accommodation will usually not be upheld in higher education. You usually have to um, mm. get re re um, accommodated and diagnosed like in uh, in high school. Mm. Yeah, I just. I just, I mean, I had spoken with you about your own experience, but I just didn't really think about all of these other layers. And I think like Rach said too, um, I think there's a lot of value in both types of advocacy, like you had mentioned before, like sharing your own personal story, I think has the value of getting across to people who aren't necessarily in the neurodiverse community, because it allows someone to kind of like come into your world and just like understand what it's like being somebody who experienced learning in higher ed a little bit differently. Whereas then there's also the value of being like, like you said, like conducting a needs assessment, (laughs) Um, like more among the community to see what we need as a community and therefore like how, what we should be advocating for as a collective rather than just thinking about individual accommodations. But I was curious, like, besides just listening to, like, as, you know, the world that's not necessarily in the neurodiverse community, like, how we can advocate or, like, support people with neurodiverse backgrounds, um, besides just listening to, like, like, people's stories like your own, like, are there other things that you can think about with just solutions that we can all work on? (laughs) Yeah. Um, um yeah I think you know again I'll I'll speak from like personal experience rather than I I get nervous about speaking for the community because I think you know we're all raised differently and so like certain things may not Mm -hmm. make other people feel better um for sure I know for me like there was an instance where my learning disability was disclosed to an entire classroom um, from my professor and it was during a time where I felt like you know I just didn't even think about my rights at that at that moment in time and I just let it go um when the class was done you know I went with a lot of my um classmates to get some lunch or you know study or something and I just really appreciated that they looked at me and said, Hey, like that was not okay. And Mm -hmm. it gave me the space to be like, Oh yeah. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Like that wasn't okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, and it's okay to say that that's not okay. Like I don't have to be just embarrassed by what happened. I can actually be, um, I don't even, you know, I I don't have to be embarrassed by it, but rather I can, it's okay to be angry and it's okay to then um, make steps forward to, to make sure that maybe that doesn't happen again. Um, Mm -hmm. So just acknowledging the fact that, that things happen when they shouldn't, I think is really important because at least for someone like me, I'll occasionally, if I'm not in a space to even, you know, consider my learning disability as something that I have rights for (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. having others support me in that is very 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 empowering Mm -hmm. Um, yeah something else and this does not go for everyone absolutely this does not go for everyone I personally love when people ask me questions 
I really love when people take the time and ask me questions rather than we're kind of sitting awkwardly having me talk about my learning disability or not having me talk about my learning disability, but maybe I'm just talking about it um, or something happened or, you know, whatever. And the, the other person is just kind of like nodding, <laughs> just like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like maybe nervous to say something or nervous to ask questions. I would almost rather you offend me and we talk about why that was offensive mm -hmm. um, and move forward and, and ask questions than have just like this awkward head nodding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes <laughs> sense. I think that makes a lot of sense because I've even... Um, I watched this YouTuber who's blind and she talks a lot about disability. Um, and she always says kind of a similar thing of like, if you're like uncomfortable with my disability, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Like yeah. if we're all just like comfortable and more openly talking about it, it just is more beneficial for both of us versus yeah. like tiptoeing around it or almost acting like it doesn't exist. Like it doesn't, it's not a negative thing. So if you're just open about it, like it's just, I think probably more comfortable for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. I would just say that those are probably the things time and time again, that I definitely come away with feeling like, you know, those could be um, improvements in my life. I think something that could change also is for example often if people ask me you know what are some examples of like how your disability impacts your daily life um so way back when maybe a couple years ago I would give the example of yeah I forget my keys all the time um and before I would even kind of go into like what that really means like I mean I would put my keys down somewhere and absolutely spend an hour searching in the house, not even knowing where I would put them, even though that's a very obvious and reoccurring place that I put my keys. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, like, like, it's kind of like, I'll be holding my keys and like, not know that they're there. Like, you know, my, like things that are not attached to my body, I just don't create hooks in my brain for, for where they are in my scheme of life because it's just not important at that time yeah. um and you know I could talk about even further like how I can't remember my keys or can't find them um and often I would receive the the comment of you know I would say oh yeah I just you know I can never like an example is like I'll never be able to find my keys like unless I have a designated place for them and even then I would say like 50% of the time I'll end up spending 30 minutes trying to find them. Um, mm -hmm. And the person says, Oh I, yeah, same. Mm -hmm. I must have a learning disability. I must have a memory disorder too. Um, oh. Yeah. And then one of my really favorites is, Oh yeah, I'm getting old. So I may as well also have a memory disorder too. Like, I just feel like I always have a memory, you know, memory problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, don't say that. <laughs> yeah, that just feels invalidating. Like, and maybe some of them are saying it to try to, like, in some way relate. But I think totally. it definitely does do more harm <laughs> than good. Because yeah. 
I think it's more validating to say like, I don't fully understand that, but that sounds like that's really challenging or something along those lines. And or like, I can only imagine because like, I forget my keys, but like maybe to the mm-hmm. extremity that you forget your keys, like it is not the same. Like it is an extreme yeah. key forgetting situation that I yeah. experience daily um, versus, Definitely. you know, just like losing your keys. So um, yeah. Or even if I don't give like the key example is often like the, you know, I tell them I have a memory disorder and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I'm hitting my fifties. May as well, you know, I may as well get diagnosed with that too. Mm. <laughs> okay. <I kind laughs> you of do like, that. Ugh. That reminds me sort of, I think of even like mental health conditions. I think a lot of people, if they've like every person has experienced anxi- the feeling of anxiety at some point, but if you don't have the disorder, like you just don't understand fully. So I think some people also do that with like anxiety or even feeling like depression or even like OCD. Some people are like, oh, I'm so OCD. I, I write like my notes if they're messy again, or like I'm weird about my room being clean, but it just, it's like, you don't, I don't know. I think I just, it reminds me of that, like people trying to sort of relate, but they're not, it's almost just invalidating and no, totally. And I think there's like a, like a time and place, right? So like, if we're sitting down and you've asked me about my disability, that is not the time to attempt to relate and Mm -hmm. like talk about your experience because the whole goal is is for you sat down with me to understand the extremity mm. of the situation that I'm dealing with. Um, yeah, for sure. I actually don't mind if people, this is, you know, a personal thing, but I don't really mind too much if people make jokes about like having a bad memory, but there's like a time and place for it. Um, mm-hmm. And sitting down with me and talking about and asking about my learning disability and taking my time to discuss it with you is not the time for you to crack jokes. <laughs> yeah. In my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think like just recognizing the depth of experience has mm-hmm. a lot of value and something that you can't directly relate to, even if that you have little things that you can resonate with. Like, oh yeah, I'm forgetful. Some like I mean like, I feel like I'm forgetful sometimes, but I wouldn't necessarily be like, oh yeah, like I can really relate to what you're saying mm-hmm. um, just because it's it's a different experience. So I think, yeah, it's like recognizing the depth of other people's experiences and like holding space with active listening to really like not only validate, but just like attempt to kind of understand a little bit more of what, I don't know, like a day for you is like to therefore, like you had mentioned earlier, be a partner or a I don't want to say an advocate necessarily, but someone who can kind of support you in situations. Like I feel like in school, when you're talking earlier about our experience as TAs, like I didn't really feel like I was doing very much. I feel like I just, but I did have this understanding of if Lexi has something to say and it's really on your mind, like, yeah, I'll let you go. Like (laughs) I'm happy to like, let you get what you need to get out. And like, especially when we had limited time with our teacher, cause then we could kind of also like reconvene together um but it changed my whole experience mm -hmm. but to me it felt like just having a little bit of an understanding was enough 
um, to not necessarily even feel like I was adjusting much, but just to be like, oh yeah, like, like if we both have stuff to say, I'm happy to let you go. Um, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting that you brought that up because like, I didn't realize that was as impactful as you made it sound. So, um, I think that's just, that's just interesting to, to show like a little can go a long way. Yeah. 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 Um, No. And, and I always tell everyone, you know, us, us as a partnership being TAs, being in a partnership is so hard in the first place. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But we had, I just can't even explain Sarah and I's dynamic. Like, and she just came from a position of like, I just told her everything. And then if I noticed something was happening and I could connect it back to my disability, I would be open with her and let her know that that's what was happening. And she would just like adapt beautifully. And, and like what she's saying, this is such a beautiful example. Like what she's saying, it wasn't that huge of an adaptation for her. Right. Whereas me, it changed the whole course of my emotional well-being, my ability to be a good TA, um, and just, you know, even my learning, like, cause I've obviously like learned a lot during my experience as a TA too. Like she changed that whole course just by slightly adapting and she, yeah, you didn't even realize it. It doesn't have to be this really challenging thing to adapt our world a little bit to be more, um, friendly to everybody. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's sure. just these really <laughs> strict ideals. I think that we have in place for how things are supposed to go, but yeah, I know that I, I loved our teaching experience. I feel like we complimented each other really well. I so know. It it's so kind beautiful. of fun to think about it again. <laughs> yeah. 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 And like, you know, we're also even goons. for <laughs> we're just goons. We're just goobers. Um, and even for like our listeners, I think it's important to note, like, you know, Sarah and Rachel, I asked if they could write out questions for me and write out a timeline and discuss kind of A, B, C, D, where we were going for this podcast. Um, and so like, that's an accommodation right there. Um, and it made this podcast better because I disclosed to them like what I needed. Um, and then they were able to adapt and, and do that. And I think, I don't want to say it's easy, but like, it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. And I think that goes back to even, you were saying certain professors were more understanding than others. And to them, it's like nothing, they didn't have to do very much on their end like they just had to honor your accommodations like it's really not I don't think very difficult for them to accommodate you but to you it was so beneficial and it shouldn't I think this another takeaway is that it really shouldn't always be on you to have to like over explain yourself and to really have to advocate it should just be because the receiving end doesn't have to do that much like it should just be very easy for them um yeah and I think with any sort of um challenge there's like in our society I feel like so many people have to spend so much energy advocating when in reality the people that aren't dealing with this should be the ones that are doing as much work as well because that's very exhausting I think I could imagine for you having to constantly kind of explain it especially if it is not as common for them to come across yeah no I definitely agree and I think I 
do want to note that like I think in you know a college setting where there's so in college settings there's usually a resource center or like a something um I do think in high school I think sometimes teachers are stretched too thin there doesn't have to be as well built of a system or they're just I don't know if there there's not really an expectation as much versus college um so I do feel that like teachers need more support um in that setting mm-hmm. and I have heard from many professors in higher ed that sometimes accommodations they're unable to provide because the center is not or the institution as a whole is not actually providing support to the professor to provide those um but that's like a different thing right like what you're talking about is like them just not like not understanding and just getting frustrated that they have to like accommodate someone right but I did also want to just like highlight that I think resources are scarce sometimes like especially in Mm -hmm. high school and grades below high school Um, because those teachers are just expected to do so much. And also like, I know, I know in my undergrad, I think it worked pretty well. Like I was saying, I really had a great experience. I do know in grad school, sometimes, um, there, there was often a comment of like, there wasn't as much support. So I think kind of understanding a lot of the accommodations and under doing an analysis of like, what is the support that's needed and having the institution allocate proper resources to help teachers could definitely alleviate some of the strain between Mm. that professor student relationship. Um, Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's not fired up there. It's not (laughs) necessarily like like always the individual, (laughs) like it's sometimes just the systems at large and like, even like yeah. the yeah. cash flow, <laughs> like yeah, where money is being yeah. allocated. Yeah, for sure. Oh, wow. Exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's like a domino effect of like, yeah. if the system's not equipped, then the teachers aren't, and then the students aren't supported. Sarah kind of explained the system's perspective that you guys were referring to. And it's like, sometimes overwhelming to think so large, because it's like, what do we do to start? But I think Um, such a mess yeah it's it's rough (laughs) it's like it's like we we call this over engineering in my um in my workplace but it's like we over engineered our current system and now we have to kind of break it all down it's like I don't know like re how do you do that I mean how do you do that I don't know I don't have an answer yeah I feel like everything is a little overcomplicated in general, just like everything that we do on a daily basis, even with technology is just unnecessarily confusing and like oversaturated that the thought of getting out of that is even more daunting. I think at this point, like we've gotten very deep, but I think on another note, the pandemic in some ways has kind of peeled back some of those layers, um, at least for myself. And I think for a lot of people I've talked to, so I, I'm hoping that perhaps, even though it's been a really horrible time for a lot of folks, um, that maybe it could be a jumping off point um, to maybe to starting some of this work and transition when we're all kind of back in person and working again and in school again. Um, Yeah, I do. I do know. Yes, I agree. I think the pandemic has allowed for like a lot of reflection. 
Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I also think the pandemic put a lot discriminated, um, resulted in a lot of discrimination mm-hmm. uh, towards people with learning disabilities because we were taking mm-hmm. classes from home. And if you have an accommodation mm-hmm. such as needing a distracted, reduced environment, and you don't have access to that in your current home or where you're living, yeah. um, you're not going to do as well. Mm, oh wow (laughs) good point of it Mm -hmm, yeah um and I think it made it really really hard on people with learning disabilities specifically because a whole new learning environment occurred and so they were realizing they were not like the 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 way that they were tested for their accommodations was for an in-person classroom setting Mm -hmm. not for an online setting Yeah, I could only imagine, I mean, everything has had to shift, but I think I could imagine like the re the, the disability resource center probably had to do a lot of like really quick thinking to try to like figure out how to kind of continue those accommodations. And some just, I feel like unfortunately weren't possible if you were in an environment where you couldn't have like a quiet space at home and stuff. So that's a really good point, I think. It really showed a lot of, just so clearly, a lot of our injustices in today's nation and society. Yeah. yeah, I think it just brings up how, like, my perspective of it as someone who doesn't have a learning disability was kind of more like, oh, yeah, I feel like we've had to all reflect. But I think, like, as a world, there's maybe been a lot of those kinds of assumptions made without necessarily talking with someone. So, yeah, no, that I'm glad. I feel like that kind of opened my <laughs> my mind a little bit. All right. So I feel like we've covered so many amazing topics throughout this whole conversation. Um, is there any kind of closing um, ideas that you want to end with, Lexi? I would like to end with basically you know, the fact that having a learning disability means that you think differently and thinking differently is a strength. It's not a weakness. And I think there's a lot of um, creativity and there's a lot of opportunity for, for those of us with learning disabilities to bring to the table something that neurotypical people may not even consider. So in, in conclusion, the, the othering issue of having a learning disability and then you know, having a stigma with that is harmful. We can really move forward if we see those of us with learning disabilities as having strengths because of having a learning disability. Um, And I think that's so, so important. So, you know, keeping an open mind, talking, asking questions, and seeing where the worth is and where the strengths are in other people. And that goes for so many things beyond learning disabilities can really help our community grow. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing uh, and like for coming on the podcast. It's an episode we've been really um, like hoping to do for a long time. So thanks for fulfilling that. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. I was just going to say, I feel like I learned a lot through this whole conversation and just planning the episode and everything was really insightful. So thank you. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's so funny to me because it's like, it's my daily experience. And so 
for to hear that from you that you know you learn something also opens up my mind because I do sometimes forget that you know this is my experience and and this is other people are not experiencing this so so I love that you know this was a learning experience for all of us mm-hmm. um, and that's so beautiful oh <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah well thank you Lexi <laughs> thank you So um, we hope you enjoyed that conversation that we had with Lexi. We both certainly did. Um, Just learning more about neurodiversity in general and how we can all perhaps work together to create a world that allows everybody to be recognized and, um, you know, to, to be uplifted for what they bring to the table rather than um, shut down for not necessarily meeting these societal standards that honestly, like, why are they there? Like, they're not real. <laughs> um, I think we all kind of create expectations in our heads that that aren't necessarily real. And I've just been questioning a lot of those things lately. And I think this conversation was one of those where I was like, why do we expect people to like be really good at taking tests? Mm-hmm. Or like, why do we expect everyone to be able to um, be taught this one way? Um, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's kind of like, everything's being turned down yeah peeling it's like an onion (laughs) yeah it's like once you start peeling back layers it's like oh my god there's so much to explore and critique and try to improve for sure yeah and just being like everyone has strengths and just we just need to recognize them we can't put strengths and weaknesses um we can't have pre-existing ideas of what strengths and weaknesses are i think we have to just give space for people to show them um Mm -hmm. And yeah, we're all people. We all have something to bring, I think. For sure. Yeah, I agree with it all. And yeah, I just feel like my eyes are definitely more open and just more mindful of um, things that I knew were an issue, but I didn't have um, a ton of like uh, firsthand experience talking to somebody that actually dealt with them in their day-to-day lives, you know? I'm really grateful she was able to offer her time and just to be so open because it's definitely like not something you have to be open about if you don't want to, you know, like it shouldn't Mm. be put on the person to have to explain to other people the issues like we should be exploring them ourselves. So we we should just care. We should just re-examine. Yeah. Yeah. um, And so with that, I... I want to invite you, Rach, to share the very first caffeine fix of the week. So for my caffeine fix of the week, I'm going to have to go to Starbucks and recommend to you guys their sweet cream vanilla cold brew. I think this is an incredible drink. And I just feel like for me, Starbucks, like I've gone through phases where I'm really into like a certain drink. And then once I kind of phase out of that drink, I'm just kind of meh about it. And for a while I was kind of like, eh, Starbucks is okay. Their lattes are fine, but they're nothing special. But once I found this cold brew drink, I've been like, oh my God, reopen to how good star- some Starbucks drinks are. So in the cold brew, I might go get the cold brew actually literally after we record this because I've been craving it all day. So <laughs> It sounds yeah. like a plan. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, well, in the meantime... I guess I'll just keep it simple, um, but follow us on social media if you can. Um, we're at Mocha's in the Meantime podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. We also have a website, mochasinthemeantime.com. And I want to also encourage everyone to leave a review if you're enjoying what you're hearing. In the upper right-hand corner of our website, there's a button that you can click on and it'll take you right to our Apple podcasts. Um, you know, give us some stars, give us some feedback um, and we would really appreciate that just to kind of get our names out there and to get more, um, I guess, feedback from listeners. So go for that if you want. And um, yeah, we'll see everybody next time. Peace. Peace.